Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Sherman Cruz. Sherman graduated in political science minor and economics and a Master of Arts in public administration at Northwestern University. He also took further studies in security, risk and resilience, renewable energy development and business continuity management. He was formerly a business continuity manager for PricewaterhouseCoopers Philippines and the Philippines location leader for risk management and business continuity management at EY and also a business continuity management site leader for Accenture. Sherman is the co-founder and vice president of the Philippine Futures Thinking Society and also founder and chief futurist of the Centre for Engaged Foresight. He is a core member of UNESCO's Global Futures Literacy Network, a founding member of the Asia-Pacific Futures Network, and a full member of the Association of Professional Futurists. Uh, good morning, uh, Peter. Futures Thank you for Study the kind Federation. introduction. Question one, well, the, the Sherman Cruise Sherman. story. It sounds an interesting one. So what is the Sherman Cruise story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Oh, yes. Uh, it actually started, began when I was taking my PhD in political science at the University of the Philippines, Diliman. I was in my first year back then. And then, of course, uh, always, you know, uh, during the orientation, you know, they would give you, you know, an idea, some sort of a scope, you know, the extent of the work involved when you're doing a PhD in political science. And then after that, of course, after that orientation, I, I started to like some sort of uh, rethink and reflect uh, on what dissertation would I take uh, in the process, because that would take a lot of time, you know, uh, in fact, you know, for the duration of the course. And then when I was like uh, Googling, you know, for um, uh, research and uh, methodologies, and I suddenly found, uh, found out about this uh, three uh, letter word, you know, it's called the CLA. And it started <laughs> on it that was uh i think in 2006 right uh, 2006 yeah if I, if I recall it right and then i started reading that it's kind of pretty interesting it was my first time to hear uh, this tool and method and then when i tried to like look for more resources then i started seeing the word features and foresight yeah now it, it, it actually picked my interest got me interested and i started reading a number of articles by Swahil and Ayatullah uh, during that period. And, and it gave me an idea. You know, I might as well like some sort of use this, you know, for uh, my PhD uh, dissertation proposal at UP Diliman that time. And uh, after that, after a couple of days reading the CLA, you know, I emailed Swahil. I got his email, uh, you know, of course, through his website, you know, the metafuture.org. I emailed him. And the good thing is that he, re- he replied a week after that. Yep. And then we had a chat. I, I, he asked me to like Sherman, send me your abstract, and I did send my abstract. It was initially about you know the future of governance, Philippine governance, of course, uh, trying to figure out how to use the causal layer and some other things. And then of course, uh, Swahil always reverts quickly. He did, and you know the comments and f- feedback were good. But then my issue was uh, there was no one from the department who was doing futures and foresight. 
So uh, that was my challenge, you know, because uh, Futures and Foresight was uh, not there yet, you know, at the University of the Philippines, Iliman, and everybody was was really into this you know, strictly uh, political science field, you know, uh, the social science research and methods, you know, those approaches that are pretty quite popular during that time, which is, of course, you know, systems uh, analysis, structuralism, among other things. So uh, that was my challenge. I, I couldn't like uh, pursue a dissertation using features in foresight because uh, no one really had a background in, in this part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then after a series of email exchanges with Sohail, you know, uh, Sohail has always has been generous to me, even from the beginning. And then he sent me three of his books. <laughs> you know, the 1.0, of course, the first uh, CLA book, and then his book at Tamkang University, Questioning the Future. And then another one was Understanding Sarkar, you know. Yeah. And I started reading all of these books, and it was pretty quite amazing. It was new to me. So I was kind of like re-energized, refreshed. Okay, this is something new. So I was kind of pretty excited. But then again, of course, reading is, is another thing. But then again, learning it from him is, is another way of uh, knowing, right? And, uh, of course, my concern was like, how am I, how am I going to actually do this? And uh, I haven't had that experience to actually like uh, facilitate a conversation or, you know, a research on CLA because I, I was kind of pretty much used to using traditional research approaches in social sciences, right? And I was, uh, back then, was really like the quantitative type of uh, research. Fortunately, after a series of exchanges with Swahil, and then he suddenly, like, uh, you know, contacts Cesar Villanueva of the World Future Studies Federation, who was at the time. Of course, we know that Cesar is, uh, I never knew that Cesar was a Filipino, but then I learned about Cesar, that he was a Filipino from uh, Bacolod City in Iloilo, uh, when I had an email exchanges after Swahil uh, asked me to coordinate with uh, Cesar, because they, they were planning to have a futures workshop with the World Future Studies Federation at the Right Livelihood College and uh, the University of Science Malaysia in Penang. And uh, the good thing about that was initially there was a plan, you know, uh, there was a conference uh, in, uh, that was planned to be held at Penang, Malaysia by the World Future Studies Federation on the future of education. So that was, I think, initially it was a partnership between the Global Higher Education Forum. Of course, and then after they were able to finalize it, Cesar sent me the, the course details, and uh, location, among other things. And I learned that in that conference, you know, you've got like around four to five futurists facilitating the course. It was Jim Dater, you know, he was there. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Swahili Neyatula, and then, of course, uh, Ivana Milojevic. And then, and of course, you know, the course director was uh, Cesar Villanueva. And wow. so I booked my flight and I went to Malaysia there for almost three weeks. That was my first uh, futures thinking course. Of course, the first uh, instructor was Jim Bader, right? Wow. So Jim Bader was uh, was funny but uh, provocative, and then I started learning about these emerging issues, you know, alternative futures. It's like a whole new world for me. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty different, as if as if you know the feeling was uh, different, right? Mm. Like because I've been used to you know political analysis and the public administration. Yeah, and uh, it's always about the conversation about the problems that we're having. But then again, perhaps what I was exposed to as far as the practice was concerned wasn't really about, you know, the emerging issues and the trends and the foresight. There was an instance perhaps when I was still in college taking up my master's degree when the, the book of Jim Dater was uh, introduced, right? Because during that time, 
in 2006, Future Shock was pretty quite much popular. Mm. Future Shock was uh, cool, yeah. but uh, it did not really like provoke me to really explore future stuff, among other things. But uh, later on, you know, I, I started reading Future Shock by Alvin Toffler after the, the WFSF course. It was more interesting to me that time yeah. when I was exposed to these kinds of ideas. Of course, after Jim Dater in that course, uh, you have Ivana Milojevic having a conversation about, of course, inclusiveness and diversity. And then, of course, women frame of uh, ways of knowing reality and alternative futures. And uh, she was always critical about a lot of things. And it pretty much give a different flavor, you know, in, in, in the course. And then, of course, in the afternoon, I think Swahil was was busy that time because he was doing workshop left and right. <laughs> so he dropped by and did this uh, amazing game. Uh, he gamified, you know, uh, the CLA. Was, he did not really, like, uh, approach it, like, strictly academic approach. But uh, what he did was, like, in order for us to immerse into the process, he did this CLA game. It, it was all fun. Mm. Fun that, as it was, the interest really was uh, growing for me. You know, it was really like it, it captured my entire attention and being, among other things. But then it was not just about the course. It was also about my engagement at the World Future Studies Federation Jeff Forum, you know, in the part uh, on the Global Education Forum. That is where I was really exposed on how uh, futurists and foresight practitioners like uh, weave these ideas together. Uh, to come up with uh, alternative futures and link this to strategy and public policy, including like architecture, engineering. And then, of course, you have some folks from the University of Hawaii. It wasn't only Jim Dater was there. It was really the the, the UH troop, right? The, the, <laughs> yeah, I met all of them, you know. Stuart Kendi was still a PhD student that time. You have John Sweeney and then Songwon Park. They were all PhD students that time. You know, it was really an amazing conversation, you know, mm. because we were like, meeting in the evening, you know, the after conference uh, chat, among others, like really, I was just listening and observing and asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing experience. And of course, I met Jose Ramos. So he introduced me to Jose. And then that, by that time, you know, Jose was uh, doing stuff at the Journal of Future Studies, helping Swahil out on, on the JSF uh, thing. And uh, he actually encouraged me after that, you know, to write a paper on futures and foresight. And then after that was an amazing journey. Like it suddenly, you know, the consciousness flipped, flipped in a way that I've always been a skeptic. I think it was transformative in the sense that I was optimistic. After, you know, my optimism was pretty quite high after that. And then when I was on the plane, you know, uh, then I started to wonder and question what I'm going to do with this, right? Like <laughs> experiencing this high point uh, of that journey. And then started wondering what I'm going to do now after this. So after that, you know, I emailed Jose right away. And then we had a conversation. And then he suggested to me, you know, why don't you try to some sort of set up a center in the Philippines? Mm. And then calling those folks that I've met in Malaysia. And then I've asked them that, hey, can you help me, and, uh, help me? Like, can you be in the advisory board, you know, for the Center for Engaged Foresight? I called John, Swahil, and then they all agreed, yes, including Cesar. Mm. And then Jose and I experimented on setting up a futures course, the first futures course that I did with him. But then since I was still learning, you know, a futures course I too, I couldn't really like, you know, I told Jose that I'm not really in a position right now to facilitate the futures workshop or, you know, lecture, uh, among other things. So I invited him to do that for the course. 
And uh, what I did was to organize it, you know, extend this invite to different people. And then we had like around, like, if I'm not mistaken, like around 15 who registered, sign up for that course. That was it. After that course, uh, it changed a lot for me because I also learned about Jose's approach, futures and foresight, which is, of course, action foresight. And then that gave me a more vivid sense of, okay, how this is what I'm going to do with this. After that, started doing it. Like I did a number of uh, futures course, foresight, until I get, you know, of course, it's all, almost always about the learning by doing it and reading and writing paper and publications. My first write-up on futures was I tried to explore the future of liberal arts. Like because during the time I was te- I was teaching humanities, you know, I tried exploring it. Uh, of course, uh, using you know critical future studies as an approach. By doing that, I-, I learned the different ways on how civilizations you know perceive and look at the future of liberal arts, and then would expose me you know to different ways of knowing and how different civilizations like uh, Indic, Chinese, Western liberal arts, and Islamic you know, appreciates and understands and contextualizes humanity. And that pretty much gave me a, a good grounding, you know, on how to approach uh, later on uh, future studies and foresight practice. Right. Because humanities would emphasize keywords and key things like, for example, freedom, choice, piety, and culture, uh, those kinds of stuff. So after that, my immersion would, would go deeper I would get my first client in consulting, you know, uh, primarily you know, with, with the government, uh, specifically with the local government, because previous to that, when I was doing foresight, I was really into this uh, public administration stuff. Before I did futures, I was an executive assistant to the governor, you know, on environment, strategic planning, and some other stuff. Of course, uh, it was always about, you know, the problems, and there was no innovation going on. It was just, it was all, I was stuck into that, you know, like it was kind of pretty depressing because if you do strategic planning, you try to like, you know, uh, mitigate and manage these problems, but then without having to like embed or integrate perhaps innovation mechanisms or features and foresight gets depressing because it's always about, uh, and boring because it's always about the, the goals and targets, while not necessarily saying that bad or weak governance, among other things, but, you know, you need some other things that, that should be a part, you know, embedded in, in, in the governance agenda that makes, that keeps people inspired and moving, mm. not just about the, the plans, the values and the targets and the problems and the policies and the politics, right? Yeah. And the politics really quite, really pretty depressing. I have to find some ways, you know, to transcend myself beyond this. Thanks, Sherman. That's great. So moving on to question two, the one where I encourage the guest to talk about a method or a framework that is central to their practice and to explain the use of that tool or framework to listeners. So what do you want to talk about, Sherman? Oh, yeah. As I've um, mentioned in, in the first question, and the reason why I am into futures and foresight work today is because of the method causal layered analysis. It's a pretty much really a good introduction into foresight because I was into public administration. The fact that the method starts with a news headline makes it even more powerful because in public administration, in political science, you know, while 
it is uh, while the conversation is central to systems and systems thinking, but then again, you know, it's always about you know trying to you know navigate and make sense of oh, yeah. okay, what could be the news headline if this becomes possible? You know, if there's an outcome, what's the news headline? pretty much strong and attractive as far as uh, my governance background is concerned because it begins with the news headline. But then it also give you the opportunity to actually deconstruct it and try to see, okay, why, why was this the news headline in the first place? Uh, it also gives you the, the ability and the space, you know, the, the framework to question why it happened in the first place and then, you know, invest in, in a time wherein you will do a systems thinking approach within, again, in political science, systems analysis by that time was really pretty quite much the political science method, like systems analysis, uh, social sciences. So through that, you know, it, it gave me actually the avenue you know, and the opportunity to realize that, okay, it's not just about the political system that we're talking about here, but it's also about trying to make sense of you know the drivers of change, you know, that are influencing and shaping, you know, uh, the the context and this news headlines, the narrative, the story, how a news headline could could emerge. It gave me an opportunity to look beyond the political and uh, learn also, you know, on how to, you know, to drive a conversation about the economic, the technological, the environment, the social sciences, and ideas, innovation, especially culture. You know, and of course, uh, while there are different tools and methods on systems analysis, like systems, people's deep, one that particularly like attracted me most is the inspect method. I was introduced to that when I attended the Futures Conference that we had in Perth. In fact, I had this book until now. Uh, it was really pretty quite much beautiful because, you know, you have this inspect, you know, like as an acronym. Okay, I think this is pretty much better you know like uh, while while the outcome in the process perhaps facilitation you know would would differ you know it sounds better than steep and steeple you know it was not uh, policy or or political uh, narrative like it's like you know like c-suite leadership time but inspect i think was uh, much more appropriate when you start engaging and uh, creating a participatory uh, systems approach of course, you also have nature in that, and it, it also includes culture, which was more inclusive. So, and then I started using that and experimenting and improvising and how I facilitate the systems work. And that I had been using in my process when I go to the systems level. And then, of course, uh, it was even more deeper. You know, you would have a worldviews, you know, ways of knowing reality and the civilizational and the myth and metaphor that encapsulates, you know, the three other levels, some other things. That was pretty quite strong to me. And uh, I invested like around almost the next five years doing CLA work in all of my engagements, you know, from the university to the academy to consulting work and been doing CLAs uh, since then. But then, of course, uh, there's also like, you know, the six pillars, right? Initially, you know, in my first years of futures work, you know, I've been using uh, the six pillars as my approach. But then over time, doing some modification and tweaking it a bit, uh, especially in how these uh, tools and methods are applied in a workshop setting, uh, like, for example, the shared history stuff, that was beautiful. In my experience, uh, when you start people in a futures and foresight engagement, especially in Asia, you know, uh, the history does a lot of uh, help, you know, in, in transitioning people into thinking about the future. Because you, it, it makes the, before, what I learned is that it helps a lot in terms of 
like contextualizing the perspective and uh, grounding the conversation a bit because you put them in a situation wherein they think in, in long term, from a long term perspective, but, uh, you know, accessing the shared history and the shared narrative in the past. If you engage them into that conversation, you know, they would have uh, some sort of uh, not necessarily like a default point, point of view, but some sort of a shared narrative. They would realize and perhaps reflect that, OK, we do have a shared story that brought us here. It's not about specific ideology or a political party, but then again, realize that it is it is us collectively that actually has shaped the present that we have. Uh, other than, of course, uh, the stories that our ancestor told us, but then again, we, uh, we actually had a role, you know, in, in shaping the present that we have. And then that would give them some sort of a grounding and a perspective, that, and that is why perhaps it leads you to a, a view that futures is, is, is critical. While history is important, you know, you bring that with you as we try to imagine and shape and have a conversation about the future and learn the tools and the methods, you know, the history. So, Sherman, I've just got a question for you just because it's coming up and I haven't, and no one's actually tackled it yet. You're the first person I'm going to throw this at is that, I mean, CLA is a powerful workshop method, but just recently with the COVID virus, we are not doing workshops anymore. We're now trying to work with people using technology um, have you got any comments or experience in trying to employ methods like CLA in a technology environment rather than a physical workshop space? Yeah, that's a good question. In fact, of course, you know, we need to adopt and improvise and experiment in a lot of things, especially now that, you know, uh, the futures and foresight work is done virtually. So, of course, there are platforms and tools that uh, we've been using uh, in the last uh, three months you know, to facilitate capability building workshops. I think we are at this point now, that stage, the, the capability and uh, skill building workshop continues. But then we've been trying to find out uh, ways, you know, explore ways and how you could actually still uh, use the tools and methods, right? Uh, to have a conversation about the future and then still put them in a situation that they're engaged and empowered, that they can share among other things. But the, the question is good because about the CLA, I haven't done uh, a CLA workshop virtually as of this time, right? Uh, what I did is that uh, what we build so far is that, of course, you know, uh, the, the simple, uh, less complex uh, methodologies, like, uh, for example, the futures wheel analysis. It's pretty quite uh, not easy, but less difficult to facilitate workshops virtually using simple tools, create some sort of an impact, like futures wheel analysis, the futures triangle, in scenarios, it's all about having conversation stories and trying to imagine alternative future. Uh, that is pretty quite man manageable. But then as far as the ECLA is concerned, that is something that I still have to figure out. Because, you know, as we all know, right, a CLA is one of complex tool to use mm -hmm. even in, 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 in a face-to-face -face workshop because uh, you would spend more time, like, explaining it, right? And then for layers, you know, you would spend a lot of time, like, just perhaps if you try to, like, um, uh, if you have 1.30 hours for a CLA workshop, that pretty, that's pretty quite much difficult. But you can do CLA, I think, three hours of uh, CLA I think that would be good enough because it is immersive, it is deep, and then it brings people to conversation at different levels and layers of reality. 
and especially about worldviews. Uh, people normally are not really like exposed to this kind of stuff. Uh, perhaps at the news headline and, and the systems level, yes, but uh, the worldview and the myth is something that they need to get exposed to and uh, learn further. But then uh, perhaps uh, you can do that by modifying the levels. Like you need not have to do the four layers. Like you can divide the four layers into two layers. Like, for example, the news headline. I mean, I haven't then, done it either. I, yeah, it would be a terrible shame if we couldn't, if we found that the really powerful tools that go to depth can't be deployed in, in a kind of distance environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I asked the question because, yeah, the simple tools are the ones we're using in those environments because they work. You know, I wonder too whether actually the the mm-hmm. actual gaming of CLA might be easier to run in a um, in like a Zoom environment than actually trying to run a, a pure CLA conversation. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. We we need to like design a game, you know, to do a virtual mm. game, you know, to actually facilitate a CLA workshop. Yeah, but but the good stuff is that, uh, of course, you know, Swahil has been doing a lot of CLA master classes virtually. I haven't attended that master class yet virtually, but I, I want to learn from him and uh, try to uh, just see, yeah. you know, how he does yeah. it online Thanks, and virtually. Question three, the one where I get to talk to Sherman Cruz, citizen of the world living in the Philippines. How does Sherman make sense of the emerging futures around him? Both, I mean, as I say, not as an expert technician, not in terms of methodology, but as a person living in and emerging futures like all of us. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good question. In fact, I did a workshop last year at the DAPFN in Bangkok. That was November. And then I haven't written a paper about this yet, but uh, this was the idea that I had in mind. In my years of uh, doing futures in foresight, of course, uh, learning from different methods and approaches, and then uh, learning from the engagement that I've had over the years, and then perhaps this is uh, primarily because of the practice that I, I was doing, and my background as a risk management professional in business continuity, you know, I had that idea of, uh, you know, uh, integrating and embedding much deeper uh, risk thinking and uh, continuity in futures and foresight practice. Of course, this is also a critic, perhaps, of my own work, because in the things that I do in most of the workshops, that the outcome of my workshop were always about alternative and preferred futures. While the narratives are good, it empowers and engages people, but then I realized that uh, perhaps... I might need to to make the future more elastic and make the future more adaptive in terms of the narratives and the stories people tell is the mm. need for us to engage them in conversation about risk you know, in the futures that we all imagine and create. I realized that, of course, uh, futures and foresight is pretty powerful. It moves people. It transforms them. They become active in terms of doing transformative work within their own organizations and in reframing the narratives and the discourses that emerges from that and the experience. Of course, also lies the idea that risk and innovation are, how would I say it, <laughs> this, are, are like sisters, right? If I think the word, right? So innovations and futures in foresight are not devoid of risk. That was... Uh, 
what I felt. Of course, these are innovation. It empowers and informs people, but they are also disruptive. There will always be a transition risk, whether we like it or not, because we are trying to innovate something, experiment on something. While some others perhaps might want to do it incrementally, you know, some would do it like abruptly and just Monday morning, going to do it oh, now. Yeah. And that, that it, it rocks the boat, right? Yeah, it does. And, and of course, that at, at an organizational level. But now, what if that occurs at a societal level, right? And because you have this group of people and communities trying to imagine, you know, this particular future. And if they agree and they have a consensus, they feel, they believe that this is something that we should do. And then you only have this group of people like uh, doing it and that would emerge or well, become disruptive. Well, Sherman, is that when things are relatively stable, risk is seen as a chance to improve or make things better or address things. But when things are unstable, as you say, transitions are very, very dangerous things. There is no guarantee. And what I think about risk is risk is also very, very unfair in the sense that not everybody has the same capacity to to actually, if you like it, respond to risk. In other words, if I have more, if I have more resources, then I find risk less scary. But if I have less resources, risk is very, mm-hmm. very dangerous. Oh, yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that that's the best way to put it. And and that is why in, in my practice now, I've uh, been doing this uh, since uh, November, is, you know, uh, some sort of uh, find a way and embed in my framework wherein people, while they're trying to imagine the future, also try to identify and map emerging risk, you know, and threats that our futures and uh, imaginings uh, create. Not necessarily like, you know, to have a conversation about risk wherein people get scary about the things that they're trying to innovate, but uh, rather to have a a better grounding and perhaps a perspective that while we innovate, we must also acknowledge the the, the risk, you know, that uh, this imaginings might potentially create. Uh, It will certainly be disruptive, but then, of course, uh, there must also be a conversation about uh, risk. No, I'm not talking about the risk management framework here where you integrate, you know, uh, the risk management framework in Futures Thinking Foresight Workshop. I'm just trying to create a futures tools and a, a, a future tool wherein people could have a conversation about futures and the emerging risk. You know, of course, if we talked about emerging futures, risk is, will always be there, but then we must have an opportunity to have a conversation about that too. No, without necessarily driving a conversation where everything becomes scary and fearful, but rather uh, in the context that it also yeah. empowers you to actually prepare for the unexpected. And then, of course, uh, what I've been trying to do is like, okay, you have a conversation about uh, imagining alternative futures and then having a conversation about the preferred and the desirable, but then also having a conversation about uh, the emerging future, which is, of course, that is something that is unknown and invisible yet, or something that we have anticipated already, and try to put that in the conversation to make it more like uh, a conversation, em- empowering in the sense that you're trying to like prepare for something that's emergent. You know, because emergent things are those things that we haven't perhaps experienced or thought about yet, but we have it 
or perhaps have anticipated yet, but we're not yet prepared for it. Like, for example, and that would later on uh, lead to me creating, inventing the Dreams and Disruption game. Like what we do uh, did at the APF, that was the inspiration behind it. Okay, we have a con- we must have a conversation about helping people, you know, imagine uh, and uh, learn how to build scenarios with drivers of change. Yes. But then, of course, uh, we must also try to acknowledge and realize that there are leaders and movements, game changers that will change the conditions of change and how we frame and acknowledge or define these drivers of change and the implication, because these are not neutral, right? These are driven by people, you know, and technology and inventions that change the, the framing and the, the, you know, from a critical interpretive point of view, the way people know and, and, and apply it. That would change it, but then, of course, future visions you know, could be at risk. You know, uh, if uh, there are crises that are, or are catastrophic crises that are perhaps of planetary scale. So, how might this uh, future visions change and evolve? You know, how might we make these visions alive in in, in the event that uh, we are faced with disruptions? And these disruptions can be man-made, cyber, or existential. Uh, we, we also need to have a conversation about those things, uh, trying to figure out how we can make these visions and strategies uh, more, not just necessarily resilient or sustainable, but, you know, making our conversation in the exploration of future imaginings more elastic. And uh, to borrow the word, of course, inspired uh, by Nicolas Taleb's yes. idea. The of Dreams and Disruption game was great futures. fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It made it absolutely clear to me, and it's something I hadn't thought about, Sherman, which was we often talk about grand theories and let's take Marxism as an example or socialism as an example. There's the theory of it and then there's the leadership of someone like a Stalin as opposed to a Lenin as opposed to a Trotsky, as a, in other words, or even, a, or even a Mao to that extent. In other words, the theory is is what it is, but the person who becomes the personification of the theory is more fundamental and more disruptive than we necessarily think about. Yeah, and that, that is why, you know, we, we in, of course, in the leaders, when we, we, we try to, to, to design you know, who are the leaders that perhaps we can include it, we, we, try, we try to diversify it because uh, uh, this was uh, created by us uh, most of uh, the leaders that we've included there are are those mm. uh, champions, you know, in 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 Asia, yeah, and uh, in Africa, you know, and uh, of course we all know uh, we read that in history who were the game changers in in the West and Europe. We all know that we've included that in the game, but then when uh, we also tried to make it more inclusive and diversified, like uh, for example, uh, in 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 a scenario where there is, we just had a game. Uh, with with a number of students at the Development Academy of the Philippines, and then they were faced uh, with uh, a number of uh, drivers of change, like for example, atheism, uh, mysticism, intelligent highways, and I forgot the other uh, driver. And then, of course, you, you're forced to uh, you're you're put into a situation wherein you try to think, you know, uh, how this drivers of change could emerge uh, when you try to envision it in a preferred future scenario. Right, of course, uh, a lot of stories would come out. It's pretty quite weird and unique, and perhaps authentic because this is where it, it puts people into some sort of imagining uh, things and stuff and events, you know, that connects this uh, drivers of change. And then, but then again, of course, you're faced with a leader, right? And then they were all mm-hmm. with the leader, like uh, for, for example, Muhammad Yunus, right? 
Huh? Yeah, the Ford driver was social credit system. So I uh, try to imagine a scenario with this Ford drives of giant mind in a, in a in a weird or preferred future uh, scenario example. And then they, they draw up the the leader uh, whose name was uh, of course Muhammad Yunus, and uh, we know who we, who he is. And there's really like one of uh, the most uh, influential, you know, game changing person who tried to develop this credit system in in Bangladesh, right, or in India, wherein it enables people to actually like even if you are poor, you can actually have the access to the credit system. How might Muhammad Yunus change the game, you know, in, in terms of uh, the future that you create? And then, of course, uh, and then suddenly, you know, uh, then uh, this leader in the scenario is faced with mm-hmm. a situation wherein there's a global internet blackout, right? When in this particular future world, in the year 2040, everything is virtual or, you know, uh, internet. I'm not even sure if, you know, uh, internet will still emerge in that period because perhaps, you know, people in technology or the Silicon Valley or Whoever so that who might are the be, leaders that you're paying attention to around you, particularly the disruptive leaders that you're paying attention, I mean, around you now, sense of the future? And if you're employing the kind of idea, well, I'm assuming that there are leaders that you're looking around you now as being potential disruptors or game changers. Yeah, of course, uh, certainly, like, the most obvious, mm-hmm. the low-hanging fruit, are these uh, technology leaders, right? And pop icons. Pop icons, like, for example, in Korea right now, right? Uh, just recently, you know, the South Korean government just issued a, a news that, you know, they had this group, it's called BTS. And uh, even in the course of the pandemic, you know, like, it, their popularity on YouTube in the virtual and the digital world translated to actual, like, I'm not sure the exact figure, billions of dollars for the Korean government and in, in terms of, uh, you know, in, in the technology industry, a song would reverberate, you know, would create some sort of impact implications to uh, the, the, the science and technology industry of Korea. It creates a lot of opportunities for them. Like, it creates new jobs. I think uh, this song, when wow. they release it, create like 8,000 jobs for Koreans. So, yeah. So they have this idea of gross national coup, right? And this are the exact evidences, you know, data that you can use, you know, that, okay, is gross, na- gross national cool an emerging future as far as the future is concerned, Fantastic. the future of economy Thanks, or Jim. what? So, yeah. Fourth question, the one of communication and so how does Sherman Cruz explain to people who don't necessarily know what you do, how do you explain what you do? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing it, but uh, now that I'm trying to, like, that's a pretty much quite difficult question. But, uh, of course, I, what I normally do is start with uh, how futures and foresight is defined in practice. Because, like, for example, in the Philippines, what I normally do, Filipinos learn best when you try to like introduce and define a concept or a tool or a method when you try to relate this with the culture and the story that they have. So what I do, especially like in my workshop in Asia, is I always try to learn about their myths, their story and the culture that they have. And I'm trying to make sense and try to have a better understanding of who these people are. I've learned this from Swahili and it always like some sort of reminder always that you have to meet them where they are. 
you know, not just, of course, not just in the context of the organization that they are in right now or of their professional work, but then uh, meet them where they at as a community or perhaps as a person or uh, perhaps uh, their interest, you know, uh, their, their perspective. So, uh, you know, I try to learn beforehand, you know, not just about their understanding, whether or not they are familiar about teachers and foresight. Of course, those uh, data are important. But then again, the more important approach for me, and it worked pretty quite well, I believe, is, you know, start with, with, with this story and try to link what features in foresight, how they perceive themselves in the context of history. Of course, you start with that. And then, but then again, you know, try to make sense and try Could to put them in space. Could you maybe just talk about an example of how you've questions. done that thinking and then explain to people so that what you do makes sense to where they are? Yes. Like, for example, and I, I use this as framework model, the Reed Van Winkle exercise, wherein we know the story of Van, Van Winkle, right? You know, he slept for a number of years and then suddenly he woke up, you know, it was the American Revolution. And then he was wondering, you know, uh, waking up in a brave new world that was pretty quite different and he did not have any idea. So that was the scenario and the situation. And then when he went back to his house, you know, his home was no longer there. And then he learned perhaps some of the people in his community were still alive by that time. And then he learned that his wife died. And then, But then, of course, the situation was approached, like, for example, he tried to project this in the year 2050. You put that in the scenario where in an artificial intelligent person or being approached Rick Van Winkle. And then uh, before Rick Van Winkle, you know, can have a conversation with the AI, the AI would give him the privilege to ask three questions, right? That is, is the game that we do in order for us to start in a conversation about question the future. Like in this future world, you're, you're now awake in 2050. You're wondering, you don't know what it was. What would be the three questions that you would ask? you know, this artificial intelligent being. That is what we do at the global level because, you know, it's Reed Van Winkle's pretty quite popular. But then what we did is like to uh, try to replicate that using uh, local stories and myth. And then if you put them in a situation using their stories, uh, I think it becomes far more engaging and not foreign as far as uh, this uh, particular group or client or community is concerned. You use their stories to, to engage them in a situation when they start asking questions about the future. Not really about defining it for them, but putting them in a, in a situation wherein they try to reflect and contemplate about possible futures, however, reframing it in, in, the, in a way that they don't say it or try to predict what the future will be like, but then put them in a situation when they start asking the questions about uh, the future. So we're at question five. Do you want to tell the listeners about the Asia-Pacific Futures Network and its upcoming conference? Oh, yes. This year, uh, the Philippine Futures Thinking Society, it's, it's a, a society of futurists and professional fact practitioners in, in the Philippines, uh, will host the Asia-Pacific Futures Network, the sixth Asia-Pacific Futures Network, and it's slated on November 19th to 21. The theme for this uh, year is uh, Regenerating Asia 2050, uh, Using Futures Literacy to Transform uh, Governance, Culture, and Economy. This year, we try to replicate what we've been doing, you know, uh, the success 
you know, experiences that we did in the last five years, but then, you know, try to some sort of create a, a virtual design, you know, to enable still for this uh, futures and foresight conversation and sharing to continue. So what, what we'll be having this year is, uh, of course, we're going to have a plenary and futures literacy, but then we'll also have a special session on how policy and how futures and foresight uh, is employed, you know, uh, and the experience in, in the public policy world. But we will be, this will be done in partnership with the Committee on uh, Sustainable Development Goals, Innovations and Futures Thinking, chaired by Senator Pia Cayetano. You know, we have a very strong champion in the Senate right now, and uh, it's, it's been helping us, you know, to, uh, she's been helping us and, uh, you know, trying to make futures and foresight accessible, you know, to the public and not only that, you know, to engage the dip- different government agencies to have a conversation about futures and foresight at the committee level in the Senate. And uh, the Philippine Futures Thinking Society and the Office of the Senate has been collaborating and partnering to like explore and design, okay, at the committee level, how um, how might we be able to have a conversation about futures and foresight and go beyond the traditional committee hearings and public hearings that they've been doing in the Senate. Is this conference uh, just for people in the Philippines? I know uh, it's a global conference. You know, we will be releasing the the global call. Uh, for present for, for speakers and presenters uh, this week, and we will launch the website uh, next week. But I think the call for presenters will be released this week. Futurists mm. uh, from different parts of the world was something to share about the future of Asia, how they envision the future of Asia, and then of course some news or provocations about how futures and foresight could emerge. And in Asia, particularly in governance, culture, and economy, and some other things, including public health. Non-futurists are also invited here because I think there are a lot of people who are interested about futures and foresight now, you know, uh, and I I think pandemic has played a role in that. And uh, those who are interested are also invited because we will set up some sessions and workshops that are kind of foundational and introductory those who are not futurists but are interested yeah, that's good, to I learn mean, uh, about it. There will be links to the um, to the conference uh, on your uh, on your page with this podcast. So we'll have all that information for people who are interested. Um, so again, great, great. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. Yep, I I I will uh, uh, you know con- contact you about that once uh, all the. On behalf of the Future Pod community, Sherman, I'd like to thank you for taking some time out to both tell us about your story and a little bit about the work of Futures and Foresight in the Philippines and Asia, and uh, I do wish you well for the Networks Conference. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, it's been an honour and privilege being a part of uh, Future Pod and uh, of course, uh, I also learned a lot from from the insights that you gave. Uh, it adds on to the learning, uh, to my learning journey Thanks, futures, of futures and foresight. Thank you very much. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.